I'm Rod Liddle and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio Australia. Now here's the problem. Nerds are supposed to be pitiable and an object of ridicule. They're not supposed to become a kind of master of the universe, the richest person on the planet. Especially not when they are a particularly geeky, otherworldly nerd like, yes, you've got it, Bill Gates. A kind of distracted, ethereal being who got bullied as a kid for his geekiness and small stature. The kind of kid who at the age of 13 was writing his own software programs when none of the other kids had the remotest idea what software was. I suppose that's how Bill Gates ended up with, well, everything. In the 90s, many people hated Bill Gates because it was like a monopoly. Of course, Bill Gates would tell you what kind of monopoly was that. We, we didn't force anybody to buy our software. He's become, I think, the poster child for billionaire philanthropy. He had a particular charisma, too. People wanted to really please Bill. He was terribly demanding as an executive. Bill Gates was always very good at quickly adjusting. I think he was a great inspirational leader to the software engineers, a little bit less so for everybody else. It's an incredible story of his capacity to seize the chance when it happens. He made mistakes, certainly. No CEO, no entrepreneur is perfect. He was often difficult to deal with, which is why he needed these other folks around him, because he could so quickly understand what were the technical flaws in a product. He gave people quite a hard time. It may be called Microsoft, but the American tech giant became very, very large, and some say its success came from playing very, very hard. Microsoft went from a 1975 startup to a meme you may have seen of chino-wearing engineers dancing to Start Me Up by the Rolling Stones at a 1995 product launch as they changed the world of home computing. And almost certainly, something you have done today has been enabled by a product or piece of software that's passed through Bill Gates's Microsoft Office, or at least has Windows, such as this script, for example. History shows that Microsoft products were able to excel to such an extent that, in a word, they became the world's largest computer software company. Microsoft's power even reached a point that saw them found guilty of trying to monopolize the personal computer market. Hey, you see what I did there? Bill Gates was a billionaire before he was 32. In fact, from 1995 to 2017, Bill Gates held the Forbes title of the richest person in the world every year, except four. He also decided that he would give away 95% of his wealth. What did Bill Gates get so right and what did he get wrong? How did he build a software company that today employs over 200,000 people full-time and last year had a revenue of $200 billion? Who is Bill Gates? First, I met Bill Gates. It's total accident. I was beginning as a journalist. It was 1986. And Microsoft friends put a bus with all the journalists. And in front of me, there was this guy, Bill Gates, a shy guy in his suit, uh, not very at ease because 
probably he wasn't speaking French. And I had Bill Gates in front of me. But like today, you would be in front of someone. How can you know that this guy is going to be the richest man in the world? I mean, so you talk to the guy in front of you, naturally. Bill Gates was trying to promote Windows for PCs, and it was very, very hard for him. But when he came in France, I began to realize that this guy was quite incredible, very, very clever. He had a trait, an attitude which I like because he was not at all trying to please you as a journalist. If you would say something stupid, he would not make any uh, reservation to show that you were stupid. One time we were in Paris at a restaurant. In France, we, we like to have fun. And at one moment, I said to Bill Gates, what, you don't speak French? When I was free, I was already speaking French, which is obviously a joke. And Bill Gates took it very, very seriously. He said, but when you were 19, you didn't create your own company. You see, it was always confrontation. It's a very funny character. But I like the guy very much because he is very, very interesting too and very easy to talk to. And the strange things that people do not realize, he has a very strange kind of humor. Very, very strange. He makes a joke. So you laugh for one reason and then you think there is a second reason why it's funny and maybe a third reason. It's mathematician humor. Voila. That's French journalist Daniel Ishbia. He wrote Bill Gates and the Microsoft Saga, the first biography of Bill Gates. So, he says the Bill Gates he met on a bus was down to earth, both funny ha-ha and also a little funny strange, but clearly a most intelligent person. Gates was born in 1955 in Seattle, Washington. He was raised in an upper-middle-class family and was encouraged to be competitive in everything he did, along with his two sisters. Gates had a very close relationship with his mother, Mary, who worked with charities and served on several corporate boards, which would help Gates early on at Microsoft. A voracious reader and obviously very bright, his parents moved Gates into private education at 13, where he met both his first computer and Paul Allen, his co-founder at Microsoft. They started programming and in 1970, with Bill Gates aged 15, went into business together, developing Trafodata, a computer program that monitored traffic patterns in Seattle. That made them 20,000 US dollars. Bill Gates left school with exceptional grades and went to Harvard in 1973 to study law, but, perhaps unsurprisingly, spent most of his time in the computer lab. He then became one of the most famous college dropouts, leaving Harvard in 1975 to pursue a future with Microsoft. At that point, personal computers didn't really exist yet. There were just a few kits that had been introduced that very year, and uh, Bill and his co-founder created Microsoft to serve that market. So over time, there were really two critical insights from Bill. So one was to productize software, to figure out a way of packaging critical software that programmers used and that people used and sell it as a product. So not rewrite it or customize it for each computer or each application. Until the personal computer, that's really the way most software was sold. It was either customized or tailored uh, to a particular machine or application. And so Bill had that insight, and we believe he had that insight because he had two 
companies he formed in high school. One was to uh, monitor traffic in town. Another was to create uh, class scheduling in his high school. And so he understood that you can make tremendous amounts of money and also improve usage of computers and software if you found a way to package software rather than write it custom for each application or each computer machine. Uh, and so when the personal kit came out, he concluded that eventually computers would be everywhere and he wanted to create software for those computers. That's Professor Michael Cusamano from the MIT Sloan School of Management. He's author of the book Microsoft Secrets. He also co-authored a book with Professor David Yoffe from Harvard Business School, Strategy Rules, Five Timeless Lessons from Bill Gates, Andy Grove and Steve Jobs. Here's Professor David Yoffe. Microsoft really is the first pure software company. Prior to Microsoft becoming a real organization, Nobody just developed software. That was just not in the lexicon of any entrepreneur. People made hardware, they made computers, they made networking businesses, and they developed software for those products, or they made accessories. So Bill was really the first one to understand the possibility that software could be an independent business separate from the hardware to which it was connecting. And so he, well, he didn't actually develop the first platform, but he developed the first independent platform. Uh, IBM had a platform. I mean, many of the uh, digital equipment and the mini computer area had platforms, but they were all proprietary and closed. Bill was the one who understood that there was an opportunity to build an open platform, which would potentially extract enormous amounts of value from the computer industry more generally. So Bill Gates was determined to monetize software for personal computer users and even wrote an open letter to computer hobbyists saying that their continued distribution and use of software without paying for it would prevent good software from being written. As the computer industry grew, Bill Gates traveled a lot, touting the merits of his Microsoft applications. He often took his mother, Mary, with him. She was on the board of a non-profit with John Opel, who was chairman of computer giant IBM. At the time, IBM wanted to hire an outside software maker to develop an operating system for its personal computer. Here's Professor David Yoffe from Harvard Business School. If you want to be a great strategist, and I think Bill was a great strategist, it's a little bit like being a great chess player or a great game theorist. You've got to be able to think two or three steps down the road, what's likely to come, and then you've got to reason back to what you need to do today in order to get you to that future vision. The ultimate big first step that Microsoft took was the decision to offer an operating system, which you know, today we think of as Windows. In those days, it was DOS, to IBM in 1980. And part of what Bill understood was that operating systems, even though he didn't have one, he had never developed one, he didn't really have necessarily an understanding of what it was ultimately going to look like. He recognized the importance that an operating system could play to generate applications and to make a product far more useful to consumers. Create a strategy to deliver an operating system to IBM. And again, remember, you have to remember, he did this by buying it, not by actually developing it, and contracting with IBM in such a way that he had the flexibility to sell that operating system to anybody in the world, not just to IBM. And it was that combination of seeing where the world was going and then figuring out how to deliver it in a way in which he could extract a lot of value 
that made Bill into a, a, a fabulous strategist from the very beginning of the company. I'm Rod Little. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. So, Microsoft and Bill Gates had cleverly bought and developed the operating system that became MS-DOS, and which they provided to IBM, shrewdly in a non-exclusive rights deal. Sales made Microsoft the number one platform. Bill Gates was a special species, according to French tech journalist Daniel Ishbia. It is very rare to have a programmer who is also a great entrepreneur, like a technician and a programmer. Elon Musk is a bit like that, in fact. But, for example, Steve Jobs was a genius in creation, but when he started, a terrible entrepreneur. You know, while I was a journalist, because I started in 1986, I met guys with wonderful software and they didn't have the entrepreneur mind. There was a lot of uh, operating system competitive to Windows, but they didn't make it. I said to one guy, this is fantastic. You have to put a spreadsheet on it because everybody wants to have a spreadsheet. And he said, the guy just said, it's incredible. Oh, I don't like spreadsheets. So the guy, he had a wonderful program and it didn't work because he wasn't thinking in terms of what the customer wants. So Bill Gates was a rare blend of a technical software programmer and a wise entrepreneurial mind. Lance Ulanoff is the U.S. Editor-in-Chief of Tech Radar. Bill was sort of the deeper in the weeds sort of tech person who had to become more of a public persona, which was definitely not in his wheelhouse. And for a long time, he was tremendously awkward at any tech event who just, you could just didn't really feel like it was his thing. He got so much better at it later on. But to his credit, whether or not he liked to be sort of this public person, he did understand people. And I think he understood marketing. And he certainly had built a team that knew what to do. Professor David Yoffe from Harvard Business School has met Bill Gates many times over the years. The first time I met Bill was in 1990, and I was expecting to meet the ultimate nerd. There's no question that Bill ultimately is a, a hacker. He loves to uh, get into computer code at a fairly deep level. But what was most impressive to me in my first meeting with him now 33 years ago was that he was a very sophisticated business person. He understood business. He read broadly. He knew business history. He knew current business issues, business problems. And so part of Bill's success was the ability to combine his uh, deep understanding of coding and computer science with his deep understanding of business in a modern era. He definitely became more mature, more personable, willing to engage people socially in a way that he really wasn't very good at when I first met him over 30 years ago. Back in the old days, Bill had this terrible habit, which has been widely documented, of sitting in a rocking chair, rocking up and down, never looking the person he's talking to in the eye. It was always a very awkward connection in those very early days. The last time I saw Bill, is, you know, he, he, he was much more, I would describe him as normal. He looked people in the eye. He didn't have some of these strange mannerisms that I saw at the beginning, uh, the very first times that I met with him. So, you know, he matured and I think he just uh, became more social and sociable over the decades. 
Professor Michael Kusanamo teaches tech management and entrepreneurship at MIT Sloan School of Management. In his research, he spent a lot of time looking at how Bill Gates operated. I don't think he liked being interviewed by professors writing about the company, but Bill was very cooperative. We were extraordinarily impressed with his depth of knowledge, his ability to dive very deeply into actual code and algorithms of Microsoft products. We also felt that got increasingly difficult for him as Microsoft's products got bigger and bigger from a few hundred thousand to millions of lines of code. I remember one of our quotes from him was, the products that comprise 80% of our business, I understand very, very deeply. And those products were essentially Office, the Office Suite and Windows. Very impressive guy, but for us, he was all business. There was no, uh, no joking around. Clearly, running the biggest software company in the world was a serious business. But Gates biographer Daniel Ishbia says that back in the day, the tech industry and Bill Gates were much more fun. Everybody in the 80s were very, very relaxed because of the industry. That's why I could go in Microsoft and make a book about Bill Gates. It would be inconceivable six years later. When we went in Microsoft in 1995 for Windows 95, the atmosphere has changed completely. But this is true of all companies. In the 80s, you would go on an exhibition, you would talk with Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, everywhere. You would meet them at parties in the night. One night at the party, I have Bill Gates at three o'clock in the morning jumping on me and say, hey, how is the book going? Because he knew I was doing. It was an atmosphere very, very relaxed, and it was not standardized yet. You could meet all those guys. They were still in the phase of trying to dominate the market. The competition was very, very strong. However, domination of the software market did come from Microsoft's Windows operating system. The first successful version in 1990 was basically DOS, a character-based system, from a Windows graphical layer bolted on top. But in 1995, the world changed with Windows 95. Put simply, the first modern-looking version of Windows. Bill Gates software had crossed over into mainstream. Windows 95 was launched with a major star-studded event. Focus was placed on the new start button and the idea that anyone could start anything with this platform. Lance Ulanoff is now US editor-in-chief of Tech Radar and was at the launch of Windows 95 where he bumped into Bill Gates. It was that tipping point from it being kind of still about business, still about people just mainly into technology to becoming a platform for everyone. Some of the earmarks of that at the event was, you know, using the Rolling Stones music, start me up for the start button. It was like a circus, really. But the world was reporting on it. At this particular event, he was just kind of standing around, taking it all in, I would say. You know, my sense of him, a really brilliant person who doesn't suffer fools gladly. We used to describe it as he was a person with tremendous bandwidth. He could know a lot about a lot of different things and have it all in his head at the same time. We were standing next to each other watching Jay Leno give his stand-up on the lawn to a bunch of people sitting just in front of him. And I just stood next to him and I said, this is really something. I said, even my relatives, like my aunt, knows about Windows 95. And he kind of looked at me and smiled and said, that's great marketing. 
That was the truth of it. You know, not since Apple had launched the Mac in 1984 had we had that kind of tech moment that sort of broke through the barrier of just being about geeks and nerds who are interested in technology to the public. In 1995, MIT's professor Michael Cusimano was putting the finishing touches to his book Microsoft Secrets. He says he was aware that Microsoft was definitely now the world's most powerful company. What we did not foresee at that time, and what Bill also did not quite foresee in 1994 at least, was the internet and how important that would be. But anyway, they were building Windows and there was still a Windows-centric world. They had heard about the internet. The internet actually was, let's say, invented or introduced really in 1993. And then in 1994, Netscape was created and started selling a mass market browser. And so they knew about it and they it was actually Steve Ballmer who was in charge of sales for Windows and said, I've heard about this thing called TCP IP, the internet protocols. And he said, we should build connectivity to that in Windows. I don't know what it is yet. I don't know if it's important, but let's make sure that uh, Windows 95 can accommodate that. So they had the accommodation for the internet in Windows 95. And then at the last part of the project, they uh, licensed technology, the core of a browser, and they built Internet Explorer and kind of bolted it on Windows 95. But that wasn't their focus. Uh, and that was earlier that year and then in December of 95 when Bill finally realized that the future is going to be completely dominated by the Internet and everything we do from this point on has to be changed to the Internet. And he wrote a memo to that effect. It's called the Internet Tidal Wave Memo from Bill that came out in 1995. So that was the environment. They were just trying to get this great new operating system out the door with some connectivities. And so they did a very quick turn to adapt to the Internet. That was Professor Michael Cusimano on the launch of Windows 95 and Bill Gates' Internet Memo. He also mentioned Netscape. More on them to come. I'm Rod Little. You're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. Stay tuned as we uncover more about the life and career of Bill Gates, the man behind Microsoft. Disrupt Radio. On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear Simon Reynolds. The Business Lounge. He is the king of real estate, no doubt about that. He started his office in his lounge room, his first agency in 1988. It now employs over 2,000 team members in 123 offices. The Business Lounge with Simon Reynolds, spotlighting the most inspiring and tenacious self-made entrepreneurs. I want to do something that leaves a legacy so I can look back and say, okay, got into real estate, did well, hopefully change the industry, hopefully improve some people around his lives. That was a story. So it really started predominantly out of fear of never amounting to much. Check in with business guru Simon Reynolds in the Business Lounge. Live on DAV+, online and on demand at disrupt.radio. They made a prediction that sometime in the near future there would be a computer on every desk. He's not a rock star, he's an entrepreneur. He's, He's not there to speak about himself or his family. 
he said to me that the products that comprise 80% of our business, I understand very, very deeply. His real superpower is the patience, right? His ability to say, I know big change with computer software takes five years of development. Write it once, sell it a million times. That became the basic business model for Microsoft. And for a long time, he was tremendously awkward at any tech event. Who just you could just really feel like it was his thing. He got so much better at it later on. One night at the party, I have Bill Gates at three o'clock in the morning jumping on me and say, "Hey, how is the book going?" Because he knew I was doing, and it was an atmosphere very, very relaxed. Bill Gates had started his first software company at the age of 15, dropped out of his law degree at Harvard, and then became a billionaire before he was 30. His vast wealth came from the profit made by Microsoft, the company he created with his school friend Paul Allen. The launch of the operating system, Windows 95, had taken personal computers fully into the mainstream. But the author of Bill Gates and the Microsoft saga, Daniel Ishbia, says it took determination from Bill Gates to get to that stage. He believed in Windows when nobody else would believe in Windows. He started the Windows uh, operating system in 83. It first came out in 85. It was a failure. Came out again in 87, again a failure. Everyone around him was saying, we shall not support Windows. Even inside Microsoft, people would say, you have to give up Windows. IBM was saying to Microsoft, we shall not take Windows. Bill Gates alone said, we shall continue in Windows. I was there in May 1990 when they launched Windows 3. They were showing this thing called Windows, and it was how could I say? It was like Beatlemania. <laughs> I mean, you would walk in the New York uh, City and see uh, places where they would sell software. Windows was number one everywhere, everywhere. The thing which has changed is that the PCs, the personal computers, gotten stronger, and Windows was the thing to have. So they buy Word for Windows, they buy Excel for Windows, they have PowerPoint for Windows, and suddenly, I'm not kidding, you see the charts, Microsoft is number one with Windows, number two with Word, number three with Excel, because Bill Gates made a bet on Windows, he could have uh, failed. At that time, from 90 to 92, Microsoft became so huge that the thing which people were saying, they were rich enough to buy their four main competitors. The world domination that Bill Gates had achieved with Microsoft after 1995 fell foul of the American antitrust laws, deeming that their success was actually unfair and a monopoly. Lance Ulanoff, the US editor-in-chief of TechRadar, explains. So they bought a browser and turned it into Internet Explorer in like 1995. And initially it didn't even come with, Windows 95 did not come with a browser. So Windows Plus came along and you could add it. Like, so there was a little collection of software you could add to Windows. Then eventually they basically integrated it with it. So it was always your default browser and it was your default browser, you know, for years. So what happens is if you get Windows and you have a browser, well, you don't have a browser choice. Here's your browser. It's right there. Well, what happens to Netscape and what happens to the other competing browser, in particular Netscape? 
it was impossible to compete because they owned these two things. And they basically, without doing it directly, they were kind of excluding other browsers from the conversation because they weren't, it wasn't coming without one and it wasn't coming with a group of them. It was coming with Internet Explorer. So they were forced to disentangle those two things because that was anti-competitive, unfair. And they lost that because they had basically killed Netscape because they didn't leave it the room to be a possible default browser. So Bill Gates had both a great mind for computers and a vision for business, but had been found guilty of a monopoly. Lance Ulanoff has over 30 years writing about tech and Bill Gates. You know, but he, you know, behind the scenes, I think he was tough. He could occasionally be ruthless. Um, he's gotten more sort of like a cuddly grandfather figure now. And if you talked about him back in the late 80s or certainly in the 90s too, you would not use those words to describe him. Microsoft had been molded around Bill Gates and the company utilised his business brain and played both judo and sumo, according to Professor Michael Cusamano, who co-authored the book Competing on Internet Time, Lessons from Netscape and its Battle with Microsoft. In the case of Microsoft, the giant of the industry was IBM. And so Microsoft partnered with IBM, the IBM PC, which became the first mass market PC used in business was designed by IBM and Microsoft was just a supplier of the operating system and Intel was just a supplier of the microprocessor. But um, they found ways in the early years to kind of use the weight of these big players against them and figure out a niche where they were able to compete. We call that judo strategy. But sometimes Microsoft would play sumo. They would use their power of Windows being adopted by 95% of PC users. So that gave them power over potential rivals. And they used that to damage the business of Netscape, for example, or make it difficult for other companies to create competing operating systems. They would threaten not to license Windows to PC manufacturers, for example. A number of those things, by the way, which we call sumo strategy, uh, violated antitrust law. Professor David Yoffe from Harvard Business School thinks Bill Gates' strong will was key to achieving the success he did. Bill was also incredibly tough. He was, I would sometimes call him ruthless, but you want to build a super successful, super big incredibly profitable organization. Sometimes you have to be incredibly difficult, ruthless, and be willing to take steps that make some people uncomfortable. Very hard to do it if you don't have that backbone that says, we're going to do what we need to do, and we're going to do it with intensity, and we're going to win. I never thought there was any issues around his ethics or his willingness to cross a, a legal line. I think he made mistakes, which everybody makes, but he could be ruthless and at the same time, you know, try to do something that ultimately was going to be within the bounds of the law. In 1995, Forbes magazine named Bill Gates as the richest man in the world for the first time. His wealth and success came from informed and calculated gambles, according to Professor Michael Cusimano at MIT. He would make big bets like building Windows, even though IBM did not want him to do that because IBM was building its own operating system, make 
some bets like changing from DOS to graphical user interface and copying Apple there and Apple had copied Xerox or the way they incorporated the internet into their products, which were really Windows-based, not internet-based. He found ways to make some really aggressive moves that in many ways changed the company, changed the industry, but without really putting the company at risk of running out of money and going bankrupt. And the change they wanted to make was through the company. Anyway, so we call that make big bets without betting the company. Bill Gates' first major Microsoft win was in the deal he struck to provide an operating system to IBM, but with non-exclusive rights. He had bought and developed that system. Bill Gates' success didn't come from innovating, according to Harvard's professor David Yoffe. Bill was much more of a follower in innovating on new customer requirements. Many of the features that Microsoft ultimately offered were pioneered by other companies, especially Apple. And so Bill was not necessarily the best person in anticipating what uh, the next generation of consumers would need or want. I think partly because, you know, Bill was not your typical consumer and, and therefore his own experience was going to be quite different. But he was very good at observing what did work in the marketplace, following very quickly and often following much more effectively. Well, the obvious one would be the graphical user interface. And Windows was basically an imitation of the Mac. I mean, Bill would not like that characterization, but nonetheless, it was trying to do exactly what the Macintosh had done, but for a different set of hardware. He was a fast follower. He imitated very quickly. He took over the business that Netscape had created with web browsers and ultimately became a major player in the Internet. And Professor Yoffe saw that Bill Gates didn't sit back and watch others do the work for him. Bill was an incredibly hard worker, and I observed this when I saw Bill. I mean, he was working sometimes 15, 18 hours, 20 hours a day, and getting deeply engaged in the essence of what his, his technology and his products were at a very, very deep level. And at the same time, because he was very smart and he was working very hard, he was able to have a very broad view of the world because he read very broadly. He didn't just stay so focused on his company and his products and his technology that he didn't have a sense of what the broader world was going through. I'm Rod Little, and you're listening to Global Disruptors on Disrupt Radio Australia. So, if your boss, Bill Gates, is working 20 hours a day, What's it like to work for him? Throughout the 1980s and 90s, Professor Michael Cusamano spent a lot of time at Microsoft observing how Bill Gates led his team. Bill early on was quite difficult as a leader. He, kind of a, he was the top programmer, the top coder, and had a lot of respect amongst the technical people in the company for that. But there was a lot of things he didn't like to do as a manager, didn't really care much for things like marketing or human resource management or sales or technical support operations he understood early on that these were really important functions to build a company he went out and deliberately hired people with that kind of experience in other companies and so that was a unique insight that he had that steve jobs uh, did not have in the early days, uh, he was often difficult to deal with, and which is why he needed these other folks around him. So because he could so quickly understand what were the technical flaws in a product, 
he gave people quite a hard time. Now, we think that was ultimately good for the company because it created a very strong culture of trying to master the complexity of doing software development quickly, which was a lot of uh, what they had to do in the PC industry. He mellowed a bit over the years, became a little bit easier. And then roughly 1999, 2000, after the antitrust trial, he really didn't want to run the company anymore. And he handed it to Steve Ballmer. He learned a lot. We think he became quite an excellent manager over time. He had a particular charisma too. People wanted to really please Bill. He was in many ways difficult to deal with. He was very critical of people and products. But if you got it right, you know, getting... Bill's agreement or praise from Bill was a, just uh, was really inspiring to people. So I think he was a great inspirational leader to the software engineers, a little bit less so for everybody else. So Bill Gates built a strong team, but tech journalist Lance Ulanoff says that Bill Gates was always in control. I still remember when he made the dictum that there would be no more Easter eggs in products because that was something that technology people love to do was hide little surprises in Word and Excel and Windows. And he basically said, no, that's got to stop. And so that stopped throughout the whole company because he said so. And, you know, he would steer the company toward the new thing. You never felt like he was not in control, but he also was somebody who was clearly using the committee to understand how and what they should do. He had a really good team around him. Generally, he had the best and the brightest. And I think he allowed people to do their thing and create stuff, but he would definitely sometimes lead from the head. Gates was used to being the smartest person in the room, even if he had left Harvard before graduating. But he knew that he needed to build a team to fill in the gaps in his skill and personality. Daniel Ishbia the author of Bill Gates and the Microsoft Saga, says that while Bill Gates led, he knew the value of the carrot as well as the stick. Bill Gates was very generous in stock options. Everyone who joined Microsoft in the 80s became very rich in the 90s because he was very, very generous in getting the people to get the fruits from the success of the company. He wanted to get people interested in what they are doing, working very, very hard because he was terribly demanding as an executive. The first people in who made Excel, one of them uh, went to hospital after because he just couldn't stand the pressure of it. But he was very demanding, but also very rewarding. He is someone very, very bright intellectually. People are work with such person who are very, very above the average person. They can stand being criticized, sometimes not insulted by, how could I say, diminished by your leader because they are so admirative of the intellectual capabilities of the leader. Bill Gates eventually moved away from being an entrepreneur. In 2000, he stepped down from the day-to-day operations as CEO of Microsoft. He became chief software architect, so he could concentrate on his first love. But he remained on the board until 2020 when he stood down amidst an investigation into a romantic relationship with a female employee that was deemed inappropriate. He left full-time work at Microsoft in 2008 to be able to focus on his philanthropic ventures with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. 
Devin Thorpe is a champion for social good and CEO of the Super Crowd Inc., a public benefit corporation. He interviewed Bill Gates about his philanthropy. I remember in the mid-90s, as he was becoming the wealthiest person in the world, there was some discussion around his lack of philanthropy. The first thing he did was a very large educational grant of software from Microsoft to schools. So he got a little bit of criticism for that. So it's interesting to think about now how he has matured as a philanthropist, having become, I think, the role model for billionaire philanthropy. Uh, He's committed to give away, I think, 95% of his wealth. That's a remarkable goal. And he seems to be living up to that. Other wealthy billionaire philanthropists have pointed out, if you only are willing to give away money upon your death, you're really not a genuine philanthropist, right? I think it grew out of a very genuine desire to use his intellect, which I think is objectively great. Uh, He has some self-awareness of that from my study of him. He reads really heady stuff. You know, he's not spending a lot of time on John Grisham novels because he's trying to deploy his brain to say, how do I use my resources and influence to solve big problems like climate change, poverty and global health? One of the things that he's seen, which is just wonderful, is that vaccines work. It's extraordinarily financially efficient. He has pursued that with great passion. Professor David B. Yoffe from Harvard Business School has followed Bill Gates' career progression for 30 years. He's actually more cooperative in some ways today in his philanthropic efforts than he was when he was running Microsoft. He's more willing to work with other players because he realizes that the problems he's tackling are so big that even with all of his resources, he still needs other players to play with him if he's really going to be able to achieve his results. Devin Thorpe, the CEO of the Supercrowd, believes that Bill Gates uses many of the same skills he used as an entrepreneur in his work as a philanthropist. It's this combination of his ability to organize teams and resources, his patience and his optimism. It's interesting, he brands himself, I think he calls his newsletter that he and Melinda used to write together, the impatient optimist. But the fact is, Uh, That was great branding, but his real superpower is the patience, right? His ability to say, I know big change with computer software takes five years of development. I'm going to invest over five years to come up with something really earth-changing rather than work on the little things that can be done quickly. I'm going to wait. I'm going to be willing to invest in the big things. So that's kind of his superpower. And I think it really is important for people who want to do big things, because big things are hard, and you can't do them in a weekend. As Bill Gates continues working at giving away billions of his dollars, how does Professor David Yoffe from Harvard Business School think he will be seen by historians? I think he will be compared favorably to the Carnegies and the Rockefellers and some of the other great business people and philanthropists of the last 150 years. At the same time, you know, Bill's also human. He has uh, done, done a number of things that 
uh, one wish he, he hadn't done, you know, we'll, we'll look back and say he was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, whether it was stepping over the line, as I talked about earlier in the antitrust case in the late 90s, or whether it was, you know, having an affair with uh, someone at Microsoft or spending too much time with Jeffrey Epstein. He's human and he has made personal mistakes, but he'll always be remembered as an imperfect individual who accomplished great things. Well, we're all imperfect, aren't we, in a very real sense. Not so imperfect that we would willingly share several dinners with Jeffrey Epstein, mind. This was part of some mysterious philanthropic project which never quite came to fruition, but it undoubtedly gave Epstein, who of course later killed himself in prison rather than stand trial for sex trafficking, a degree of credibility. Gates has since said that he regrets the whole business, admitting he made a huge mistake with Epstein. But on the good karma side, there's all that money he has donated to worthy causes, more than four billion US dollars at the latest count. These have all been funneled through liberal supranational organizations, so whether they've actually done any good is another issue. But you would not doubt his precocious ability in computer programming, nor the fact that he was one of the very few who was able to see the future from very early on indeed. Add to that a dose of spectral ruthlessness, and you have a man who probably deserves the title of the world's most successful entrepreneur of the last 40 years. He is part of our lives, for better or for worse. I'm Rod Little, and this is Global Disruptors, a perfectly normal production for Disrupt Radio Australia. Disrupt Radio, tune in to opportunity. Disrupt Radio.